Welcome back, everybody, to yet again another episode of Going for Two. Uh, that's the official podcast, the Extra Points newsletter. I am your intrepid host, Matt Brown. I'm the publisher of said newsletter. I am joined, as always, by my friend, my colleague, my co-host, Brian Fisher. How are you holding up, buddy? I am doing fantastic. Uh, crazy to think we've done 20, this is 26 of these already. Uh, time does fly since we started this one, but uh, I'm excited to dive into our topic nowadays uh, and especially move away from from all the soccer that I know you have uh, str- not only gotten into, but uh, strangely gotten your heart broken as well. So- soccer is canceled. Soccer is a stupid sport. My countrymen shouldn't play. No, I, I'll, let me just say this, right? Like I... Um, it is it is weird growing up as a half Brazilian in the part of the Midwest where I've spent most of my life where there aren't very many other Brazilians. And so there, one of the easiest ways to express cultural identity is through the international soccer team. And I think this is true for a lot of other Americans, too, because there's a whole lot of people I didn't know were Italian uh, suddenly became very Italian this week, which is wonderful. I'm happy for all of them. It was fun to watch the Italian soccer team uh, for my countrymen to lose. Uh, on their in their home country to uh, the, the their biggest rival in the way that it happens. Uh, it sucks. And, and honestly, I'm not going to lie. Rooting for Brazil kind of sucks a little bit because it very much is like rooting for Ohio State, which, which is where I went, where it's not enough to win. You have to win by three. You have to do it stylishly. And so watching a one nothing game against Peru or something where normal human beings would go like, this is fun. We're dominating possession. We have a 10 to two shot advantage. For me, it's torture. Uh, I, do, I, I recommend being Brazilian. I do not recommend being a fan of the Brazilian national soccer team. Oh, I, I cannot go there, but uh, I will just say that, you know, soccer playing, you know, rooting for soccer teams and, and focusing on that, on that sport is it's just mostly pain, mostly pain. <laughs> that, that's that to me is the defining characteristic of, of being a soccer fan is, is mostly pain and disappointment. Uh, but, you know, we, we got a little bit of a break here. You know, it, it, it's going to be nice, hopefully some time off unless you're really in, invested in the Gold Cup. But, you know, we can kind of move forward and, and turn our eyes towards this fall season coming up because it's not just soccer that, that we have uh, around the corner. We've got college football. We've got the NCAA sports uh, coming back that we kind of missed at, at times with with all the changing calendars uh, in, in the fall. And hopefully we as we will get into with our with our guest a little bit later, um, you know, some of the issues that, that are still lingering in, in college athletics when it comes to the, the public health crisis that we've all been really living through these these past 18, 19 months. Yeah, I, I'm definitely fine to take a little bit of a break from live sports here for a minute. I'm sure that there's other soccer happening, and I'm sure that it's wonderful, and I'm sure that we still at the end of the NBA Finals. But I'm, I, I, I appreciate being able to turn off my TV, focus on something else here for a minute. Um, I, and I am, I am excited about our guest, right? Because we've, we've gone through this enormous, traumatic, uh, extremely disruptive last several months. And you're correct to point out that you know we, we haven't been able to post our way out of a global pandemic. It still exists. Uh, I'm acutely aware of this, given that uh, it's definitely not over in Brazil, which is where my sister lives and most of my extended family. And, you know, I'll hop on WhatsApp and, and, and talk to them. And the fact that that they, you know, they, they are very aware um, this is still something that people need to be to be worried about. It's 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 the vaccination rates. They're not nearly what they are here. Um, but I wanted to talk to an expert about about those vaccines. I wanted to talk to an expert that understands what uh 
you know, public health concerns need to be um, addressed for have for college athletics. What we did right, what we did wrong over the last year. Now that we know much more about how COVID works and how we can implement those into this coming season, because I think some of the disruptions that we saw at the end of the college baseball World Series that became big national stories and reignited, I think, a little bit about what we think about about COVID and, and how we address COVID. That's I don't think that's going to be a one off event. That that has the potential to be an issue moving into the fall. So we are joined here by just a moment here from, from by Dr. Uh, Kathleen Baczynski. He was the assistant professor here of public health at Nuremberg College. She's a graduate of uh, the University of Michigan. She's written a, uh, a book called No Game for Boys to Play, the history of youth football and the origins of a public health crisis. Touches into a lot of stuff about the origins of football as a game and uh, and, and concussion research, which I think would be germane to a lot, a lot of our listeners. I'm happy to turn the time over to her we can get her thoughts here on what uh, we should be aware of heading into the fall. I, I, I was hoping that maybe over the course of this conversation, you might be able to help us uh, clear up a couple of things because I, I thought that, you know, for me, somebody that got like a C plus in like freshman college biology and then never really engaged with, with public health or, or, or hard science so much after that, I thought I kind of understood where things were with COVID. And then this summer, um, Clearly, I didn't. I was wondering if maybe we could talk a little bit first about um, what happened with the NC State baseball team recently. And I know that I saw from from my own timeline and from hearing from other sports commentators that there was a lot of confusion about the idea of it being too unsafe for a team to compete in a sporting event. But still have fans attend that sporting event to be around that sporting event. And I'm wondering from, from your perspective, is there a defensible public health case for uh, allowing that or, or how, how, how might that sort of policy make sense in practice? Yeah, that was a really confusing situation for sure. Uh, I think my understanding of what happened is that multiple players on the team tested positive. I don't remember the exact number, but it was something like, four, six or eight, something along yeah, those lines. A non-trivial number for sure. Yeah, it was a group of players. And the idea there is that when you've got members of a team who you know they've been traveling together, they've probably had meals together, some of them may live together, they are really close contacts with each other. And when you have multiple people testing positive within the same team, the worry is that you're, you've already got an ongoing outbreak and ongoing potential for more members of that team to contract the virus. So it is no longer safe until you've you know, gone through all the protocols and tested everybody in the team and done the contact tracing back to figure out where all of these different players had actually contracted the virus for multiple people who'd been spending all that time in close contact to continue with the close contact that playing in a sport involves. Um, that being said, I will definitely say I'm somebody who's on the more cautious end of the spectrum when it comes to fans too. I do think the risk is much, much lower in an outdoor setting. So definitely granted, if you've got fans in an outdoor baseball stadium where it's, you know, not, you know, totally full and you've got kind of people spaced out, the, the sure. risk of transmission there is much lower. Um, but I'm definitely somebody where if this had been a basketball game or some kind of indoor setting, I would say you probably shouldn't have fans there either. Um, if you've got multiple known contacts um, of people who have tested positive. So there are definitely situations where you might say, well, if you got 
people in an outdoor stadium space, you know, 10, 10 feet apart, the risk to them is really minimal, whereas the risk to athletes who've been living and traveling together and in close contact, continuing to Pete uh, and maybe interact with members of another team and have continued onward transmission in that way would be a real risk. I also think depending on the sport and depending on the context, there are definitely also situations where you might say the game shouldn't go on either for fans in the stands or for the players on the field themselves. I see. Okay. As I've been following this, my, my what the, the the conversation immediately after this game uh, centered on this idea that well, you know, North Carolina's you know manager was was not directly encouraging their athletes to be vaccinated, and some of the athletes would even say that they, they hadn't been vaccinated not because they're anti-vaccination or weren't planning on doing so, but they were concerned about potential side effects during the season. And, and I, you know, I, I can say here when I don't know about anybody else, but after I completed my vaccination cycle, after my second shot, I was laid out for two or three days um, with, uh, and I mean, obviously I'm, I'm still very glad that I did it, but I did feel pretty sick. And if I was somebody that was expected to compete at a high level athletically that week, I probably wouldn't have been able to do it. I was a little bit winded, just chasing a six-year-old. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering now that we've been doing this now for, for several months, if there are things that you've either learned or seen that might help encourage vaccination rates among athletes in a way that, that is not so, I guess, explicitly politicized or, or rather, or, because if you, if you mentioned this on Twitter, right? Like the, the, it's going to be, if you're not, you didn't get the shot already right now, uh, you're a tinfoil hat person. And while that may be true or may not be true, that maybe that's not the most effective way to change behavior. <laughs> is, is there anything that, that you've seen that you might recommend to an entity to help encourage um, those vaccination rates? Well, those are great questions. And I'd start by saying, first, I fully agree with you that we should not be characterizing people who have not yet gotten vaccinated as all being, you know, tinfoil hat conspiracy theorists. That's absolutely not the case. There's a lot of reasons either people, as you point out, may be worried about the timing of the side effects. I know my own students, even those who weren't athletes, were really apprehensive right before finals week, my college students, you know, and I completely yeah. understood that. I said, for the end of the semester, I'm actually not going to give you a final exam. I'm going to have you do a final paper that you can kind of more easily schedule around the time you might be getting your vaccine, because I don't want my students to avoid getting a vaccine because they have an exam the next day. So things like that are very valid concerns. I think structurally, one option might be for, for leagues to kind of coordinate a bit and say, maybe we're going to have a couple days off or kind of time our practices or games to give student athletes the chance to get vaccinated ahead of time. I also think in terms of the general message, even though the, the concern about side effects is certainly very real. By the way, I'm one of the lucky people who had mild side effects. So it really oh, runs, yeah. it's, it's really hard to predict. I think um, some people get almost none. Some people like me are sort of like, oh, I got a headache and feel a little blah for a day or two, but it doesn't really lay me out. Other people are totally laid out. It's really hard to predict. But even for people such as yourself who experience a couple of days of thinking, you know, I'm really down for the count. That's a much better situation to be in than you're going into your final game of your sport and you actually get COVID-19. So I think reminding people that is nasty and unpleasant as the, the side effect can be, that is nothing compared to what actually getting COVID-19 means for your body and your health is one message. I also think the in terms of athletes specifically, the, the message that you're protecting your teammates too, this is being part of a team, you're protecting not just yourself, but the people that you play with so that you can all compete 
at the highest level and protecting everybody from COVID-19 is going to help you have a more successful season. It's going to help you compete much more effectively than constantly being at risk for the really unfortunate situation we saw with North Carolina State or with other teams that have players who test positive. So the idea that you can both protect yourself and also protect your team and hopefully have a much better chance of actually competing your season, I think could be a really powerful message. That's a good point. I wonder if we're so far you know, heading heading into this fall season, if uh, a, a university or an athletic conference would, would argue that you know vaccines have been widely available in the United States now, that we wouldn't need to set aside some some specific time, but that the idea of having like a vaccine by week or a, a break in a in a schedule to make sure that everybody can do this and then be able to process whatever side effects happen on their own terms, that doesn't sound like a bad idea. I think it really helps to sort of structure that time in. I think that works really well for lots of public health interventions, especially because a lot of people, I admit myself included, we might think, okay, this is something I should do, but you don't really get around to it till you have to. And I definitely (laughs) think there's a lot of college students who might say, oh, eventually I'll get vaccinated. But right now I'm busy with exams. And then finally I'm taking a vacation after this really hectic school year. And then I want to be in really good form for visiting my family, whatever it is. And you just kind of keep putting it off. So I think having a structured time that's like, we, it sends a message. We think this is really important. This is part of having a successful season is ensuring everyone's vaccinated. So we're all going to give you the time to do that. I think that's much more effective than kind of leaving it up to everybody to take care of it on their own time, so to speak. That's a good point. Brian, you never ran into that problem, right? You never ever postponed anything to the last minute when you were in college? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Uh, certainly not, uh, especially coming off a, a couple of weeks here in the NCA where it seems like they were pushing off uh, things that with the NIL front. No, to the ad- very end. adults would never you know, do that I, for, for, for sure. No, 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 of course not. But, you know, I, I'm kind of curious, too. But, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, a, a lot of universities, a lot of conferences were, were very involved in promoting public health, not only just saying, you know, follow your own local guidelines, but uh, doing PSAs, you know, getting out there about mask usage. We've seen to kind of taken a step back of that as these vaccines have have kind of come to the forefront. Are are you surprised outside of the universities that are truly requiring students to get vaccinated before they return to this fall that there hasn't been more of a push from some of these leagues, from these teams uh, to to encourage vaccines? Because it's uh, not only in in their best interest from a public health standpoint, but also from from their bottom line this fall, if they want these packed stadiums, uh, certainly in college football. Yeah, I am a little bit surprised. I completely agree with you. I think it's in everybody's best interest, both from my point of view of public health interest, but also from the financial interest. I mean, it is a lot better for your, for your bottom line if you're not having to constantly postpone and cancel and then realize you can't have fans or what all the, all the things that have been happening this past year. Um, I would love to see much more of a push. I think it would it would sort of send the message that we're taking this Seriously. And again, we're not just leaving this up to individuals to figure out and to navigate. Again, it's not even though vaccines are, you know, available in terms of having enough vaccines in the United States, it's not necessarily easy to navigate signing up for an appointment to figure out when to take time off. It's not an easy thing to do. And especially if you're somebody that's not, you know, online all the time or constantly checking your local health department website, which most people are not. I think having the the message and the support from the top down is really important. And I'm a little surprised we haven't seen more of that. Um, And I also think, 
you know, we have a precedent, certainly at the college level, for requiring vaccinations. I mean, college students at many colleges are required to get a meningitis vaccine. They're very often required to get measles, mumps, and rubella. That one in particular, because measles is so transmissible. A lot of colleges say, you know, you can't be a student here, or you can't live in the dorms unless you have this vaccine. So I'm surprised we haven't seen more effort to roll COVID-19 into the structures we already have for a lot of colleges, as well as, as you're pointing out, a, a really proactive outreach campaign and education campaign to get the message out. This would be a great time to do it. We still have a few weeks before a lot of colleges will be back in session. This is the chance to get the message out before you have everyone starting to come back to campus. This is this is a good point. And I don't know if some of this is because vaccine promotion is seen as some kind of overly politicalized message, uh, certainly in our in this country over the last several months, or if it's a reticence to, to be involved in public health generally. And this I think the, the latter is something that I, I really wanted to talk to you about, because I know this is more relevant to some of your research interests and some of the some of the things you've been discussing for a while. I know that something that was really troubling to a lot of public health advocates um, over the last year was college athletes in many ways are, are do not have systems that really protect or promote their public health, even independent of a pandemic. They may not necessarily feel that they are um, encouraged to report injury, that they might not necessarily have the time needed to uh, recover from injuries, that there may be cultural reasons that push them into doing things that are a little bit less healthy. And their university support structure doesn't always have their back. And we saw a kind of a decidedly mixed bag about that, I think, with COVID. I know that, you know, Brian and I have talked and I've written a ton about name, image, and likeness over the past several months and how that's really been the forefront of the college athletic reform movement over uh, really for, for a while. Now that we're, we've kind of reached some minimal resolution there on that front, do you think that the, the next step here is to shift that conversation towards public health? Is there anything that you've seen that changed awareness wise or, or athlete perception wise in, in that front? From my advantage, it seemed like this would be the next place to really start pushing, although there are certainly lots of other places to go. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I would love to see health be the next step on this. And I think even before COVID-19, there was starting to be some building awareness. I think both obviously concussions, which is something I've written about, but also yeah. um, heat stroke in particular in college football and seeing preventable deaths among college football players. And the, the particular case that comes to my mind, um, which you, you may be familiar with, is that of Jordan McNair, who is a college football player um, who died of heat stroke in 2018. And I guess the key point there to me is nobody should be dying of heat stroke. This is totally preventable. Um, so the fact that every year we see one or two college players die of heat stroke, which we don't see at the NFL level, is really striking. And it's because NFL has, you know, they have a union and they have standards at the NFL that, that direct what can happen at practices. And they also have standards for responding to a potential case of heat stroke, which are not uniformly enforced across the board at the college level. And that's because, as you pointed out, there's, there's just no enforcement system across the board at the national level for health protocols. So after Jordan McNair died, because that was a, at Maryland, a fairly prominent program, that received a lot of attention. And McNair's father, Jordan, uh, Martin McNair, excuse me, the father of Jordan McNair has kind of become an advocate for this. Yeah. And his quote that really stood out to me was amid these discussions of NIL, he said, well, how do we pay a kid if we can't keep him safe? And that really kind of 
got to me because I thought, you know, to me, the safety should come first. Um, it turns out the safety might be coming next. Uh, but anyway, long story short, I think we've sort of seen this even before COVID-19, these lack of, of enforcement. And then COVID-19 hits and you see different conferences and even different colleges have a total grab bag of responses, different protocols, different testing requirements, different quarantine requirements. And I think you really see the harm of not having consistent protocols across the board when you've got a respiratory pandemic. It makes it really hard to compete in a safe way when you don't have everybody, you know, using the same playbook. So I would love to see, I think it does have to happen at a national level, um, consistent standards and enforceable health standards. Um, I think there's currently this idea of a college athlete bill of rights that's yep. floating around. And I think that, you know, has proposed, you know, having consistent concussion protocols, having consistent um, responses to how you might investigate sexual assault cases, just all kinds of different health issues where you, you need to say, everyone's got to be following the same page. And we actually have to have a mechanism that if you're not following this protocol, there is some kind of consequence, whether that's a fine or the coach is no longer able to coach, depending on the severity of the um, violation of the protocol, you need to have some kind of enforcement because I think short of that, we're going to keep seeing the same kind of health harms repeat themselves. It's, it is in many ways, even more infuriating, I think that you see these kind of health harms and very preventable injuries, and in some cases, deaths at major U.S. universities, particularly at a place like Maryland, where you, you're in the AAU, you have enormous like medical research facilities and almost every kind of, of, of tool that could potentially be available to anybody is within 300 yards. So it's, it's not like a lack of like resources, it's will and, and how it's being directed. I, I've heard from a couple of different schools that uh, one way that they're trying to navigate this internally is to make sure that there are um, medical personnel that work for the university's medical department rather than an athletic department on hand for practices or events or individuals that report completely outside the decision structure of a coach who might have an incentive to act in a way that is uh, maybe less aligned with an athlete's help. Do you see that any of these kind of, uh, I guess, medical harm reduction, is this something that can be managed on an institutional level? I, I knew you kind of alluded to this earlier about, about uniform uniform policies here, is, is, or is really is this is something that really should be the purview of the federal government? I'm, I'm now on the side where I think it is something that should be the purview of the federal government. I think I've just seen too many institutional failures. And as you're pointing out, it's not due to a lack of resources. There are institutions where you think this should be doable, but even institutions, I do think, as you're suggesting, I do think it is an improvement when you have ind independent medical professionals. I think that does improve things, but I don't know that even with that, we can fully address the, the more ingrained problems, the sort of cultural issues of the pressures on coaches and the pressures on athletes themselves. I mean, you can have the medical professionals there, but you need to set a culture where the athlete's even willing to report concussion symptoms. Like that's something medical professionals can often see, but won't always see. You need to set a tone where the athletes feel safe to even say, you know, I've got a headache or I feel nauseous or whatever the case may be, and I, I need medical attention. And I think part of that is going to involve some pressure from the outside. I unfortunately think without some kind of standard that's that's just across the board, just relying on the individual institutions isn't gonna get us all the way there. 
Was that kind of maybe exposed with with COVID? Because I, I I do go back to kind of the beginning of the pandemic. A lot of these conferences, you know, they kind of came up with their own medical advisory committees. I, I think it was obviously helpful for them in determining steps and uh, what kind of protocols were need to be in place. But it, it also kind of laid bare some of those differences between the, these conferences. Are, are you even surprised that the NCA was, was maybe not more insistent uh, in terms of the, the uniformity? Um, I, they they do have a chief medical officer. Obviously, they are in charge of the the NCA. Uh, championship events, but they, they really did not seem to step in or kind of override any of these conferences. It, it, was that a little bit surprising in, in your mind to not have the national governing body uh, step in when maybe certain conferences were doing things? I was a little surprised for the cynical reason that I think, again, even if the health of athletes is not your priority, I would think the NCAA would have been smart enough to say, if we don't get ahead of this and have a consistent protocol, our season's going to be all over the place, which it was, because if you don't have a, a consistent protocol, you're going to have outbreaks and it's going to the virus is basically going to be in charge. If you don't take charge, COVID-19 is going to dictate your season. And so I was surprised that the NCAA didn't decide to do that. On the other hand, I have to say, looking at, at heat stroke deaths, looking at how they've managed concussions in that sense, it wasn't as surprising to me. I can certainly speak as a, uh, a University of Michigan alum, a very disappointed one that was especially you know, disappointed in my school. Uh, University of Michigan has a great school of public health. They have a great medical school. So similar to what you're pointing out about Maryland, they have all the resources, all the, the people you think who would be advising them. Um, and they ended up in a situation with an outbreak so significant on campus that the, the local health department had to say, we've got to implement stay at home orders for all the students. And that was, I think in October of 2020, but they carved out an exception for the University of Michigan football team. So seeing that, and then of course, seeing how different institutions responded differently and seeing that the NCAA did not get ahead of that by creating some kind of standard was really frustrating and really disappointing. I could definitely see how anybody who is maybe predisposed to optimism about about athlete health would look over last football season with with some real despair right because we could, there i think it was pretty you know pretty out in the open that it would take something herculean to the point that maybe the three of us can't even really even imagine it to really shut down a college football season the incentives and the demands to have some kind of games come hell or high water were stronger than even I, a son of the Midwest, I think, I think truly understood. I, I'm wondering, is there anything over the last year or two, uh, as far as athlete health and athlete harm reduction that you look at and think of as a, as a positive or a, uh, an encouraging development against this backdrop of, of what seems to be more negative news and positive news? I think the most encouragement I if I'm looking back at the past year, I think the most encouraging thing has been advocacy from the, the athletes themselves, as well as their, their allies. I'm thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm thinking about advocacy on mental health. I think we've seen encouraging examples of athletes saying, no, you have to, you know, implement some kind of testing for us before we'll play or no, we, you know, we demand some kind of recognition of racism as affecting our health and you need to, um, think about that. And this is part of the Black Lives Matter movement, or we, you know, we really need you to provide us with mental health resources and care for our mental health and not just our physical health. So I think what I've seen that's encouraging is 
athletes and supporters of athletes pushing for a more holistic view of athlete wellness. And I think that trend maybe was there a little bit before the pandemic, but the pandemic may have sort of accelerated that a bit in a good way of we really have to advocate for our own well-being. So that I actually have found really encouraging. Um, I think on the discouraging side, it's the game must go on mentality. The, the, similar to what you're pointing out, the extent that that mindset could persist, not just through concussions, not that just through ripping your ACL, but even in the midst of a respiratory pandemic and the lack of consideration, not just for athlete health, but for broader community health, acknowledging that what happens on a playing field in a society is not going to stay on that playing field when we're talking about an infectious disease, that the players and coaches and trainers are part of communities. They work with staff members at the facilities. They go home to families that you are part of a broader society and you have to be making your decisions in that context and seeing that game must go on mindset just sort of try to barrel through despite all of that was just really, really disturbing. I, I, I don't blame you. The, the, I think what has been one of the more frustrating things for me as, I, as I've looked at how everything related to COVID has played out is that this feels like the perfect both situation and really perfect illness to break any kind of hyper individualist mindset about your health, because it isn't whatever you decide to do, whether at your vaccination status or whether you decide to stay home, if you've been exposed to COVID or even the level of um, risk uh, aversion you practiced over the previous year, those decisions, it isn't just your body, your choice. Like those decisions literally impact every other, every other person around you because it's a highly contagious disease. And I feel like we haven't had something else. I mean, like, well, you know, we, we, have, but that it's hard to put a very individualist political mindset or, or personal responsibility mindset and like square that circle with COVID. And I don't, I don't know how to make somebody care about other people in the way, you know, about, about how their public health choices impact other people. Like I, I have not figured out a way to, to communicate that. Does that, does that make sense? Is, is that yeah, something that you've is, seen too? It is really hard. I think, unfortunately, there is a, a real dynamic that unless it happens to you or like one of your direct family members, there is certainly a, a sort of subset or a mentality out there of not taking it seriously or applying that individualistic mindset unless you have up until you have direct experience of COVID-19. And it's really hard as a public health person to navigate that because the entire premise of our field is to try to prevent the bad thing before it happens. And so if you can't get people to care about something until after the bad thing happened, then you're kind of in trouble. So we, I think sometimes we are more successful with the scare tactics and you certainly see that in public health with all kinds of things. And sometimes I think it goes a little far when you have the super like graphic images on cigarette boxes, you have those really scary ads where it's like, we're trying to scare the crap out of people because we don't know how else to get people to care. But even that I think falls short. And I think, to be honest, I don't think my field has figured this out very successfully. I would love to have more pu public health communication and education experts figure out how do you reach people and get them to care so we can prevent something rather than reacting to something. And I think certainly with COVID-19, we have been on our sort of back heels in many ways. We are constantly reacting. We are imposing restrictions after the outbreak gets started. 
which is still better than not imposing or, you know, responding uh, with protocols at all, but it's not as effective as preventing that outbreak in the first place. And I think we've really struggled to reach people and communicate in a way to get people to say, yeah, we want to take a preventive approach from the perspective of protecting the community in advance of this virus getting out of control. You know, with some of these outbreaks, we've seen athletes kind of come, basically come out of quarantine or, you know, recover from the virus, and they've kind of been really thrown right back into uh, competition. I, I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of the injury rate. We've seen various data coming out of the NBA where they've said it's not really been a big deal, but uh, I'm curious how this kind of COVID era is going to impact the athlete's health, both from a, a immediate standpoint from, you know, people recovering from the virus or coming out of quarantine and, and long-term what we might be able to take away from some of the, the insights we've gained uh, from these athletes coming out of uh, these, these breaks going right back into competition. Thanks so much. That's a great question. I think I guess I would sort of divide it into to two parts. One is the actual health harms of the virus itself. And then there's the, the health risks from how the virus has affected training or other aspects of, of athlete preparation. And the actual health effects of the virus itself, well, needless to say, a lot of that we're still figuring out because we don't know the long-term effects of a virus that's only been around a little over a year. But obviously there's, there's significant concern for the small subset of athletes who get myocarditis, which is that inflammation of the heart. What does that mean long-term? There's also worry, especially for athletes who are competing at the top of their game, that if COVID-19 is causing any kind of lasting lung damage in athletes, even if it's something that you and I who are, you know, well, I shouldn't make assumptions. I can certainly say I am not a professional athlete. So it's something that I might not notice if I'm just, you know, competing at like an amateur you know, level or just going for a run on my own, I might not notice. But if I was pushing my body to the limit, if I had a virus that impacted my lung capacity, even in a small way, that might actually affect my ability to compete at that highest level. So there's the heart, there's the lungs, there's also neurological effects that we're still trying to, to tease out. You may have heard of quote unquote COVID brain fog. Um, so there's also the, the psychological and neurological impact. So there's a lot of consequences of COVID-19 itself for the body that we're still trying to understand. And then in terms of how COVID-19 has upended training regimens and training practices, what we've seen is a lot of times the, the response of leagues has been, well, we're going to really shorten the preseason or we're going to really shorten the, the lead time you have to train and to prepare. And we're going to kind of throw you back into intense competition after you spent a long time, maybe in quarantine, uh, not having the opportunity to, to have very much training or conditioning. And there is evidence and it varies according to the sport, but there is evidence that that has increased the risk of injury. Um, in, in baseball, I think the issue has often been upper arm injuries. And the speculation there is, especially for pitchers or for other people, um, you really need very specific kind of conditioning to be sure that you're protecting your arm if you're going to throw a pitch over and over and over again. And if you don't have enough lead up time, you could really exacerbate an injury. Um, there's also the the worry, certainly I have this in the lead up to the Olympics as well. Again, for people competing at a really high level, if you need specific kind of equipment and if you're traveling to a competition and then you're in quarantine because you traveled internationally and you're not able to access that equipment until maybe two days before you're actually supposed to compete, then you, again, don't have enough time for your body to warm up and prepare properly before you're competing at a very high level. So we're starting to get some data trickle in and I've definitely seen data 
specific to the American baseball season. I haven't seen as much yet for something like the Olympics, but that's the kind of thing I'll be looking out for. I'm, I'm worried that without giving people enough lead time to train, you could see more serious uh, physical injuries as well as worrying about the harms of recovering from COVID-19 itself. I hadn't even thought about that for the Olympics. I hadn't even thought about the specialized equipment component to any of this. Um, I, I think in, intuitively with everything else, it, it would make sense. Uh, especially if I going back to the last fall where if athletes were home and away from campus and uh, they might not have had access to the, the, the training facilities that they might've had before. I mean, I was talking with some, some um, folks that I know that work in gyms at the division three level, and they were like having their athletes put bricks in backpacks and go run around their cul-de-sac and try <laughs> to like, you know, go into two by fours and, and build something uh, in their garage because they didn't, they couldn't even go to the YMCA intuitively it would, it would make sense that you might be more at risk for some kind of uh, muscle damage or tear uh, if you try to jump back into things cold. That's right. And then the one other aspect I would add is that if you do have people that go into quarantine protocol and then you're going to people who maybe thought they were going to be on the bench and you start putting them out on the field, that's another thing we've seen a lot with COVID-19 is turnover in personnel on the, on the team and having people who maybe didn't have as much lead time to train end up getting kind of thrown into a game if other players are going into quarantine. So there's a lot of aspects of this that I think I really would love sports administrators to think about seriously, because again, the game must go on mentality can really paper over some really significant risks when you're making these kinds of major adjustments to how athletes train ahead of time. And, and all of this, we haven't even talked about any of the mental strains. Uh, or, or <laughs> emotional or psychological, even, even beyond mental health. If you, yeah, if you spent your first three years of your college career as the 13th man on the basketball team, and suddenly now you're, you're having to play 25 minutes a night, for, forget your, your cardiologic, your, your, your heart health, that's got to do a number on your brain too. Oh, absolutely. I think the mental health part of this is huge. And just the stress. I mean, we all have enormous stress living in a pandemic, the uncertainty, the just not knowing what the next week is going to bring. And then adding that into the uh, stress of competition that's already there. I think that's enormous impact. And another aspect of that I would add looking back at the past year is that there are players who lost family members to COVID-19. There are players who lost parents, grandparents, you know, loved ones, and then asking them to take on some pretty serious risks to risk potentially getting COVID-19 themselves, especially if they had not yet had access to a vaccine or especially last fall when a vaccine wasn't even available. I think about the mental health impact of that as well, to just really think about what you're asking people, especially if they're college athletes, these are not professional athletes and you're putting this kind of burden on them. Not insignificant at all. Um, this has been, I think, a really helpful conversation. It's given me uh, some things to think about here, not just about how last season went, but how this coming fall season and the fall sports calendar may be able to go. And some things that administrators and athletes should be keeping in mind as they try to make sure everybody involved in their community is as healthy uh, as possible in multiple definitions here of healthy. Thank you so much for, for taking some time here and chatting with us. It's my absolute pleasure. Folks, this podcast, as always, is a product of the Extra Points newsletter. That is a newsletter that I publish. It comes out four times a week, digs into all sorts of off-the-field forces that shape college athletics. So if you want to learn way more about how the name, image, and likeness marketplace 
actually works, not just how it's theoretically going to work, but what those guardrails look like and what it means to actually do some of these deals and practice and what it means for the athletes. If you're curious about small college realignments, if you're curious about academic research within college athletics, um, the new, this newsletter is the is the entity here for you, right? There's there's all this information all of the time, and if you uh, you can subscribe for free at extrapointsmb.com, you can get two of those newsletters a week. But if you are a full subscriber, not only do you get four newsletters a week, not only do you get access to a special Discord chat room full of our other paid subscribers. And not only do you get the warm, fuzzy feeling knowing that you are sustaining this podcast and independent media and all kinds of open record searches and all kinds of other work that we're doing, you're also supporting my campaign uh, to give some money to college athletes right now to help endorse this newsletter. We've done, uh, I think, five of these deals now at the, at the time of listening. We're, we're going to do a couple more, and I think several more after the fall season has actually started. It's been a good learning experience here for everybody. Can't do it without your help. If you are not subscribed to this newsletter, what I would first say is you should go check on my Twitter for a little bit because you can probably find a pretty big discount code from one of the athletes that's working with this podcast and this newsletter. But if you can't find one of those and you don't want to pay full price and you shouldn't pay full price if you're listening to this because I'm going to give you a discount code here in a second, you should use discount code podcast to get you 20% off, which you can use for the next 12 months. You can go get an annual subscription for under 60 bucks for all of that content. A lot of it, original reporting. That's a great deal. Help support what we're trying to do here. Go to extrapointsmb.com and subscribe today. Well, Brian, I don't know about you. I thought that was a really helpful interview. We, I think if there's, if there's one thing among the, I guess, I guess among the many takeaways I've had over this whole COVID experience is that I should be comfortable admitting what I don't know. And my background and my life experience and my education in no way prepared me to be a commentator about public health or about how diseases work or anything beyond the fact that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. So I think it is, it is important to hear from those who study this uh, extensively to see what, what their thoughts are, particularly as we head, we head into a season where as much as we'd like things to be back to perfectly normal, I, I suspect they're not going to be. No, absolutely not. And I think after, you know, years of listening to Twitter lawyers, we've, we now listen to Twitter epidemiologists and it, it is so nice to have a refreshing conversation for somebody that uh, actually knows what is going on, not only on the ground, but uh, in, in the journals that we need to be studying in, uh, in, in, in the public health conscious and uh, not only a great conversation there, but I think also insightful for a fall that COVID is, is not going away. You know, I think that that yeah. much is clear, not just from the outbreak we saw at the College World Series, but it, it's going to be a factor. We we're already seeing it with the NFL in terms of their, some of their revised guidelines for folks that are either vaccinated or not vaccinated on teams. We started to see some of these protocol changes as well at, at the professional level, at the NBA, the MLB, whatnot. We're going to see some of those same kind of changes to the guidelines that we saw from last fall to this fall with college conferences. I would imagine as we hit this media day circuit, we're going to start to see some more information on some of those details. But uh, this is uh, this is going to be an entirely different ballgame. I mean, frankly, we, we have not seen 100,000 people gather in one spot in this country, uh, you know, in, for a college football game. We, we've seen some big crowds out there. Certainly uh, just this past weekend at Wembley, there were 65,000 over in the UK for the Euro final. I, I would imagine we're, we're still going to see some other aspects of, of college football collide with this public health crisis. And it's still going to be an evolving story. 
Yeah, I, you know, on one hand, I think we can look ahead to this fall and we can be confident that we know a lot more about COVID than we did last year. Thank God. We know that maybe we don't need to spend quite as much money, uh, you know, Lysoling every single surface four or five different times because we know that's generally not how the disease is spread. I mean, like I've been in a college weight room. They stink. It's it's a it's a good idea to like baptize every squat rack and like Lysol anyway. But like that's not going to what what will make or break this particular disease. We do know that being in close quarters for travel or for indoor facilities that are not well ventilated is makes it more likely for things to to transmit. And we I, I think you I feel comfortable stating that if your team's mostly vaccinated or fully vaccinated, that's going to be something of a competitive advantage if you're going against a team where your vaccination rate is below 50%, simply because you don't have to get tested. And you can still have a, a team of mostly asymptomatic, appearing relatively healthy individuals. But if you're still subject to that same battery of tests, I think you're going to leave yourself open to some kind of disruption. Yeah, I think that is going to be the overriding message. As, as much as, as folks might not want to get vaccinated or whatnot, I, I think at the end of the day, just the convenience factor of, of being vaccinated is going to appeal to a lot of people. It, it's the whole carrot versus the stick. And, and I think a, a lot of leagues look at these relaxed protocols as being a, a good enough carrot as you get into the season to where it is going to encourage, whether you're skeptical uh, of the vaccine or, or when you're getting it, uh, I think it, it's, it's going to be that much more convenient for you to play football, to play college basketball to play any kind of college sports uh, and that's not even to speak of the universities that are going to require uh, a lot of these teams to be completely vaccinated and, and I, I think for the coaches you know for the most part yeah they they want whatever you know the, is in the best interest in the athlete but at the end of the day it, it's also going to be a huge help for them if they don't have to worry about testing if they don't have to worry about these outbreaks that they had to do last year and I think that more than anything is going to drive a lot of the adoption in, in college sports yeah I I would I'm trying to, to think of the most delicate way to, to, to phrase this, right? Like, you, I, I understand why some coaches or some in the college athletic universe are not doing gigantic PSAs and begging people to get the shot. I, I know some of them are. I understand that that uh, maybe in, in some parts of this country, not getting the shot triggers the libs and that makes it okay. There's a slew of other completely non-political reasons why somebody might not might get the shot. My, my hope here as we head into the beginning of this season, that our friends who are administrators or coaches who are listening to this show, we appreciate your downloads and your support that these are conversations you have with your team, including do I need to make adjustments to my schedule or do things on my end to make it easier for people to comply with this, whether that means we got to set up a mobile vaccination station or set things, set things up where my athletes are going to be anyway, if we need to structure it. So we all take some, some time off. Are there carrots that I can offer rather than sticks um, and, and not make this just out of shame? Uh, and and then also realize that there are going to have to be sticks because we have to keep people protected, particularly those who might be you know compromised as we head into a season where um, this virus might be a different variant and might uh, express itself in humans in a, in a different way. Which is I don't know about you. Um, beyond the I, obviously, I want preventable deaths to, to not happen. I want people to be healthy. I want them to be able to smell and taste. I also don't want to uh, have to play armchair epidemiologist again for another nine months. It would be so much easier if folks and institutions did what they needed to do to protect themselves. So this becomes a, a less of a risk for my own selfish reasons. 
But, but again, I, yeah. I think the key fact is, you know, COVID is not going away this fall as much as we are excited to see, you know, these, these packed stadiums and, and these teams and playing non-conference schedules for the first time in, in, in over a year and, and as exciting as a potentially quote unquote normal return to normal uh, season we're, we're going to see coming up in, in NCAA sports, there, there's still going to be remnants and there's still going to be issues out there. And so I think it's still, you know, whether you're an administrator, uh, certainly on the lookout, trying to prepare for that, whether you're a player, knowing that the stuff's still out there that you've got to deal with whether you're a coach who's telling your team uh, about the latest updates you know it, this is still something that i think has really put public health and and really the health of, of these athletes uh out in the forefront again and so i think that that ultimately could be a very good takeaway as we look at from years to come is is there has been more of a refocus on the health of these players and and how they kind of go about their day-to-day lives and in what uh, is hopefully a much more normal fashion moving forward that that is is a is a perfect way to end this i think moving forward everybody athlete community member athletic department administrator even brand consumer everybody should be making decisions as we head into this fall and throughout this fall that are centered around promoting health and keeping particularly athletes healthy whether that's from covid whether that's from mental turmoil whether that's from acl tears to the extent that that's possible playing a collision sport where people are constantly having to cut at weird angles Um, and if we need to make adjustments to empower or to improve those health outcomes, we need to be doing that. Um, I, I, Brian, I imagine that's something that you and I are going to be talking and writing about more uh, over the next several months. Um, we're kind of heading out of the doldrums a little bit. I know the, the media day circuit is, is coming up here for you. What else do you got going on in your plate right now? And where else can people find you? Well, I, you know, just wrapped up uh, a couple more previews on Athlon Sports and uh, excited to get moving. And you mentioned media days. I mean, that is going to be uh, the big focus these next couple of weeks as we uh, we get back out and we start telling some of the stories of, of these teams. We, we focus on college football, obviously, but uh, it is just kind of around the corner. We, we, we've got uh, training camps opening soon. We've got, we got the Hall of Fame game in the NFL right around the corner uh, in, in less than a month. So uh, football is coming back. We're, we're, we're excited to, uh, to dive in deep into to some of these great stories and uh, I, I can't wait to tell them you can always follow me on twitter at uh, at brian d fisher b-r-y-a-n-d-f-i-s-c-h-r which is always the best place to uh to find a lot of my stuff on on everything that's going on i look forward to reading what you write about conference media days because i don't think i'm going to any this year it's a little bit of a different conversation when you don't have somebody else you could build to send you to some to beautiful city in Indianapolis. <laughs> um, I appreciate that all this stuff's right around the corner. Uh, if it's all the same to me, to you, I think I'm going to take my time enjoying the fact that it's not. Uh, so I, I want to fully miss it and appreciate uh, the summer. And then I will jump back into everything else. You can you can find me, of course, at Matt Brown EP on Twitter. I'm at Matt at ExtraPointsMB.com. Uh, we have a couple more stories coming up here on the newsletter detailing my own foray into sponsoring athletes to name image likeness deals and what I've learned from that experience. We have a conference realignment story coming up here in a little bit. A, a fun conversation with a couple of academics, uh, one at um, UMass, one at Northern Kentucky. They're trying to quantify exactly what makes the best rivalry and uh, what what what, uh, what figures and what kind of measurements we should take when analyzing that should all be interesting. I'd encourage you to follow along at, uh, at Extra Points. In the meantime, I'm Matt. That's Brian. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch up with you next week.